I want you to think about uh, if you've ever gone to see a magician. Uh, <clears throat> I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking of the card trick types of magicians, uh, but I suppose it could be any sort of magician where they do this thing, this trick, and the first time you see it, and I'm one of those sort of guys who sits in the outskirts and sort of arrogantly wants to figure out how, it, I want to be the guy who goes, oh, I know how I did that. And yet how I, I remark at how often I'm beat. And they'll do their trick, and there's something in me that'd be like, that, man, that's, how do they do that? It's, it's magic. And on occasion, they'll show you. You know, I know a, a good magician never shows the secrets, but on occasion, part of, their, part of their show is to show you some of the easier ones that they do. And after they show it to you, or you could go on YouTube and see how they do them, after you, you see them, well, you no, longer, you no longer see it as magic. You know, you know that, you know how it works. So the sort of wonderment of magic moves and matures into sort of an appreciation for the magician. Because there's a lot of sleight of hand and a lot of talent. I couldn't just pick up a deck of cards. I can't even shuffle like they shuffle. You know, and the way they distract and all that. So, so what seemed as magic at first matures into an appreciation for the magician and for the way that it all happened. Like, oh, just the whole hook behind the trick. And that's probably the case in a lot of areas in life where, where great talent is needed. You know, if uh, where the NBA, right, playoffs... If you watch the highlights, you know, it's like LeBron James can't miss. He's on fire. And to someone like me, some part is like, oh, what a lucky shot. And I'm sure if he heard me say that, he might say, well, why don't you come to a practice one day? Like, I've done like 10,000 10, of these in my lifetime. Like, what you see as a lucky shot, what we see actually moves from the wonderment of how that happened to an appreciation for the person who labored to do it. Whether it's basketball or golf or Rubik's Cube, it doesn't matter, you know. There's that, that maturity. And if you were to see how they worked to get there and still sort of said, no, 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 that's magic. What might have originally sounded like a compliment actually sounds like an insult. I mean, to say to a magician, whoa, that was like magic that you did that. That's a high compliment. But once you figure out how it is they do it, it's time to appreciate them. Well, today what we're going to do is we're going to observe, or we're sort of in this question, how does a church that has sort of been pushed into the margins. This is the series we're in. We're studying how, what the church does when it wakes up and realizes it's in the margins of culture. It's no longer this highly influential entity. It's no longer at the center. It no longer has its hands on the controls, but rather it's on the periphery. We're going to look today at how the how does a church or a people of God who are on the periphery, how do they have great influence? And hopefully when all is said and done, we will understand how it's done so that it won't just seem like a miracle to us when it happens, but rather we'll understand this is the way that God has established 
for his people to have always had influence. Okay. Well, that said, if you want to turn to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'll blow my nose and we'll get started. Great. 1 Peter 2. Let me tell you a little bit about the church in, uh, that Peter's writing. It's a church, it's a group of churches that would be in modern day Turkey. So he's writing to these churches. He did not plant these churches, but he's ministering to these churches. And he's likely writing, we think, from maybe Rome. He's writing them. We don't know exactly. And he's writing these churches, and the sense, good scholarship has, I think they're making a contribution here, which is the sense is, in the context of these letter, <clears throat> that the, the, these churches in Turkey are largely consisting of the poor and the slave community, and uh, the underappreciated castes of the culture, okay, the lower, uh, the lower stations of people. So uh, in this culture, women and slaves and the poor would probably be ranked among the voiceless or the marginalized. And when you read all of 1 Peter, he has so much to say to those categories that uh, you get a sense that the mayor is not in this church and the head of city council is not in this church. And the deep pockets are not necessarily uh, full, you know, the dominant members of a church like this. This is So that's the kind of church that Peter's writing. And I'm going to pick up in the second chapter, verse 9. I want you to appreciate as I read this, if it was that kind of church, how much words like this would matter. Okay, this is, he's going to start his, his argument here with essentially the gospel. Verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. I mean, anybody in Christ can appreciate the dignity this brings, but certainly if the church was of humble estate, how much more? If, you know, in this age, in the Greco-Roman times, a slave was not a human, it was property. A slave was an it. Well, it had a gender, but it did not have personhood. So to be under these words, you're a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen race. These are words that instill great value into a people, great esteem into a people. And there's the hope of the gospel here. You were not once this way, but now you have been made this way because of the mercy of God. Well, that's how he starts here. And then he begins sort of the, the how-to. Now, this would be the beginning of, if you want to understand how the church of God 
has influence among a people that have marginalized it, here, here's how it is. I'm going to read 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. Now, the first thing I find really interesting about this passage is those people who were a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen race, the very next sentence, Peter calls them sojourners and exiles. This holy nation now is reminded, yeah, you're part of a holy nation, but you are not at present. You don't at present enjoy everything that the holy nation would enjoy. You actually at present feel like exiles. Now, he's writing this not to people who are actually, have actually physically and geographically been displaced. These people to whom he's writing are indigenous to their churches and their towns. The church in Pontus was made of people from Pontus. The church in Galatia was made of people of Galatia. He's writing to those people, but he's calling them exiles. Kind of reminding them in an understanding way, like, I know it does not feel like you're part of a holy nation, but you are. There's a sense of in the present, they're marginalized. In the present, they're not like their town. They're not like their city. They're, they're very different. They're, they might as well be passing through like a sojourner, or they might as well be, have been displaced and stuck down in there like an exile. They're not like the people around them because of who they are in the Lord, but who they are in the Lord is a chosen people, a holy priesthood. So the teaching begins almost the opposite way that the sort of those gospel remarks infuse into people, you, these high-minded words about who they are in Christ, and then these sort of low words, these exiles, and he begins to give them this teaching. He says that they should be careful, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against their soul. And it's followed up with this thought. Keep your conduct among the outsiders so honorable that though they would, though they know in their minds that they're supposed to think bad things about you, Though they have prejudices of who you are, though they have sort of built up in them a sense of what kind of person you are, they've tagged you already as to who you are, and, they, and it's not good, it's negative. They think bad things about you by virtue of the fact that you belong to Christ, even though they think those things and say those things about you, your behavior would confound them towards the Lord. That's what he says. Not simply that your behavior would confuse them, but that your behavior would overturn their notions towards God in a positive way so that when, when they would have an experience with the Lord, they would know it, so that they would glorify the Lord on the day of his visitation. That if when God comes to meet them like he's come to meet you and me, that they might recognize God and glorify him. 
Let's just think about that for a second. Here's a group of people that are most likely, they're certainly on the margin, they're most likely uh, subject to some level of, of at least social abuse or light persecution. The time frame that Peter's writing, most likely this is a time frame where significant persecution, a wave of persecution is moving through the Roman Empire. So he's writing to people in the midst of persecution. He tells them, hey, they're this, this royal priesthood, this holy nation. And you might think, you know, if I was young and in my 20s, I might almost hope that he would say, now is the time to rise up. Now is the time to claim the justice we deserve, right? Slaves, you are equal in Christ. You're a son of the Most High God. You don't need to be a slave anymore. But he doesn't say that. You deserve more than you're getting. You should not be, but you should rise up. He doesn't say that. In fact, he says something that to a humble people is, it's almost taking their humility and saying, and I need you to do it more. I need you to live such good lives among those people who oppress you and slander you and say all kinds of evil things against you and call you haters of men and, uh, you know, sort of are prejudiced against you without good reason. I need you. What I need you to do is live such honorable lives among them that you confound their stereotype in a way that draws them to the Lord. And there's really only one way that you could ever hope to do this for any length of time, and that's if you are pursuing holiness. He starts in verse 11. Flee the passions of the flesh, which wage war against the soul. How could we expect to live such good lives among those people around us? How could we ever hope to live honorably on public inspection if on private inspection we're a train wreck? Peter's starting at the beginning. You want to have influence? Maybe you'd say this to the church, to the church on the margin. You want to have influence? Start, begin by waging war against the passions of the flesh. It starts there. Because it's from there that you will be able to live a life of honorable conduct. And that honorable conduct will challenge the people around you towards the Lord. How we live does this. Just think about it for a second. Not, I don't want you to think about what you say. And some of you may, may be thinking, good, because I don't say much about the Lord either. <laughs> I want you to think about how you live. Does the manner in which you live serve to confound the unbelieving community around you towards the Lord? Or does it confuse them? I mean, I'd like you to assume an environment where of no evangelism, okay? And we're starting to head into this, right? Workplaces and school places and all sorts of places now are trending towards the place where the freedom to once talk freely about God is now under significant constraint. Okay, so I think we're beginning to be familiar with this. So imagine an environment of no evangelism, no spoken evangelism, no outright evangelism. Imagine that. 
Imagine, for those of you who are in college, you're probably familiar with the classroom setting where you know and you feel intuitively. You feel in the room. Like, if I share, and whatever topic you're talking about, if I share the ideas and thoughts that come from the heart of God in this setting, I will end up being the, the object of ridicule or judgment. Like, they will either ha-ha at me or I will fit in some category of bigot. Just imagine, that's the environment. In that environment, what Peter's saying is, the first step is that you take conforming to the image of God seriously. That he saved you, and he's made you a holy, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now be holy. And out of that comes a manner of life that confounds them towards the Lord. So I, I wrote down uh, a crazy extreme example and I lined it out. And I'll just give you, I'll give you normal examples that have, I think, on the long term, extreme fruit. What would this look like? I would say this would look like somebody in their workplace who's a hard worker but can turn it off and go home. Or somebody who, like maybe the hardest worker in the office, but the same person does not take advantage of their hard work like on the ladder of ambition. That would confound people, I think, in this day and age. I think if you... If you were in your office, one of the most respected people who did the most, but when, whether it was at a meeting or whatever, when it was time to get credit, you shared credit. Where your coworker would think, she would think, well, I really wasn't that involved. I mean, really, she was the reason this happened. I mean, I was alongside of her, but man, she, she pulled me right in when it got time to get credit. That, I think, would confound people. Where you are as sharp as the next guy, but you're able to say, well, I'm going to go home. Or I'm taking off early today. My kids, I'm going to be in my kid's classroom. Are you able to make a lot of money and be generous at the same time? That confounds people. Because we all know the tendency to chase money often has the, the ramifications of not being able to let go of it. But to be among people chasing after it and to hold it loosely is confounding towards God. To be a person who laughs and smiles and has joy, but the, subject, the source of your laughter and your smiles and joy is not something that's degrading someone else. Have you noticed how much of humor this day comes at the cost of someone else? What if you... What if your source of joy came at no one's cost? What if, if it came at a cost, what if it was you? What if you were so comfortable that you were a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a holy nation that you could laugh at yourself? I'm just giving you regular places that the confounding could commence. Let's look at 13 through 15. Now, in my Bible, I have a title. It says Submission to Authority as though it's a new subject, which frustrates me because this is not a different subject. 
It's a progression of the very same idea. So listen for this. Listen for this progression. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governor as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. It's exactly the same idea. This is being written to people who, at the hand or edict of the emperor and through the hand or edict of the governor, are in fact being persecuted quite likely. And he's saying to them, listen, it's not that you should rise up against them, but rather double down on it. Be in absolute subjection to them. Be such model citizens beneath the shadow of their oppression that it would silence the ignorance of foolish people. It would otherwise confound them towards the Lord. So that they would say, who does this? Let me read 16 and 17. I'm going to emphasize 16 here. Look, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Live as though you're free. Right, remember what I said. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen people. You once were not, and now you are. You once had no mercy, but because of God, you have mercy, so that you can proclaim the majesties of God to all people. Remember that? Live as though you're free. It doesn't matter if you are actually a slave. Live as though you're free. Know inside you're free. Don't allow your earthly station to snuff out your personhood of the Lord. That's what he's saying. But he follows it right up with, but don't let this freedom get in the way of of your testimony and your witness. Because remember, you are a servant of God. Actually, the word servant there could be slave. In other words, live as though you're free, but don't let your freedom get out of hand. Remind yourself, you're God's slave now. You belong to him. In other words... In those places where you know inside, right, I'm being treated in a way that I ought not to be. I'm being subjected in a way that I ought not to be. I'm not getting what I deserve. This is a measure of injustice. In all of these ways, he's saying, listen, don't celebrate your freedom with some big, massive wave of what you're entitled to. The people of God are not entitled people. The people of God are saved people. And remind yourself that you're serving him at all times. In other words, you're in your freedom, submit to others as an act of worship to the Lord. Freely choose to submit out of honor to God. You may be thinking, yeah, but what if you have like a really bad slave? What if you are actually a slave? And you have a really bad slave master. Truth be told, verse 18, servants or slaves, it's doulos is the Greek there, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this, you notice this is not a new subject. It's a progression of the same idea. 
For this, verse 19, is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it? You endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And it confounds people. Remember, the source of all this is that you're pursuing holiness. The source of all of this is that you're abstaining from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. And out of this comes this consistent manner of life that draws people closer to God. And so he begins with, right, the, the, the gospel that begins. You're a chosen people, a holy race, a royal priesthood. This is how it ends. Look at verse 21. He's going to give us the gospel. We'll get on the backside. For to this you have been called because of Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like straying sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. He says Jesus is the same way. Did not Jesus live a pure and perfect life so that his conduct was so honorable among those around him that though they would say evil things about him, they would see his good deeds and give glory to the Lord on the day of his visitation? That is the exact reason that you and I have called out to God is because of the rich mercy of Christ living in such a way and in such an act and giving himself, though entirely free, right? Though in every way equal with God, he humbled himself. Though entirely free, he considered himself a servant to the Lord and gave himself up so that you and I might be confounded towards the Lord. What is the manner of love that we have received? He said, do that. How does the church in the margin live? How does the church in the margin have influence? This is how it has influence. It's not about grabbing a picket sign. It's not about mobilizing. I have to say it's sort of, well, I'll just say it this way. I feel that the generations of church in America that brought us to this point spoke very, very well, but did not confound our culture with the way they lived. They lived just like the rest of the people did, which is why we're here. And I have a sense that if we're not careful, the generation to come is going to speak in a way that's highly charged for world change and still not be, not be holy. There still seems to be a disinterestedness among the people of God for the things of God. And yet this is how it all happens. How can you serve him if you are not like him? Okay, that's the way it happens. I want us to go, I'm going to ask you to turn the Bible to Daniel chapter 1. All right, so go way back to Daniel chapter 1. And what I'd like to do for the time remaining is I want you to see it happen. So we, in a way, got to see how the magic trick plays out and now we get to watch the magic trick, okay? This way, when we see the miracle, we don't go, wow, that's an unbelievable miracle of God. How did that happen? Rather, we know how it happened. 
We understand, oh, this is actually how it happens. All right? So now that we've sort of plied through how it happens, we can come to Daniel and see it. Okay, Daniel 1, it's about Daniel. Big surprise there. Daniel is actually a real exile. So at this point in the history of the Jews, they have been de- uh, defeated, and they have many of them have been brought into exile to Babylon, hundreds of miles away, and Daniel is one of those. So he's literally in exile, okay, living this out. And I'm going to pick up in the third verse. This is what it says. It says, The king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good reputation, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Okay, let's just figure this out for a second. Nebuchadnezzar, The king or emperor of the Babylonians has taken Israel into exile. And what he's done is he said, of the crowd that I've brought, he said to his head eunuch, I want you to select out from among them the best and the brightest of this crop of people. And I want us to Babylonianize them, is what he wants to do. Clean them up, dress them up, teach them our language, teach them our ways so that we can use them in our court, and by extension, so we can dilute their Hebrewness among the Hebrews, right? If you take those who used to control Hebrew culture and make them Babylonian, you have really brought stability among your dominion. So that's what he says here. Okay? Verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Let's stop there. What What did these people eat? They ate what the king ate. If the king had a hamburger, they would get a hamburger. It's a good deal. Okay, because he's not trying to make them Ratty old slaves, they are already ratty old slaves. They're exiles. What he's doing, if you're going to stand and you're going to represent the king, you've got to look good. You've got to look. He's, he has to keep up his appearances. So these people, they're not getting gruel and mush. They're getting hamburgers or whatever. Whatever it is they ate, the good stuff. You know, green beans, not from a can. That's what they're getting. Okay? Well, I prefer the ones from the can. Yes, it is true. All right, verse 6. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked 
the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. You know what he's saying? Daniel says, Daniel doesn't say, but we should note, Daniel does not say, I will not eat the king's food. You should note, he asks. It says he asks. May I please not eat this food? But the head eunuch says, here's the deal, buddy. If, if you turn out all scraggly, and the king goes, what's wrong with these guys? And I say to him, well, one of the slaves didn't want to eat your food. And I said, okay. And now he's all scraggly. He says, it's my head that's on the line. I'll be the one killed. That's what he's saying. Verse 11. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. You know what happens. You know what happens, right? Ten days pass, and Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are fat. That's what it says. See, some people do the Daniel diet to lose weight. They got fat. Fifteen, at the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. Actually, what ends up happening is, not only does that happen, but Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are brought into the court of the king, and it turns out, it turns out that because of the favor of the Lord, they're ten times more talented than anyone else the king could find and whatever else the king needs. No matter what question it has, their, quest, their answer is ten times better than any other answer. So that by the end of the first chapter, Daniel is essentially sitting right beside the king. Now, if you've never seen this magic trick before, you would say, oh my goodness, that's magic. Look at that miracle that God did. But, if you know how it works, you would have seen it. Daniel. Hey. Is there any way we can arrange for us to eat something different? Like, really, really hard for me to eat this. Is it okay? I don't want to put you out of your way. I know, it, like, if after 10 days it's not working out, I'll shut my mouth. But I, I just in his heart. I'm just trying to serve Yahweh. Now, think of all the things that Daniel has to give up. I mean, the, think of his life right now. From sunup to sundown, he's breaking Jewish laws. I mean, he's walking among Gentiles. He's touching them. It's quite likely he is already a eunuch here. I mean, so he's already cut in a way that would never even allow him back in the temple of God. I mean, he has to wear things he would have never worn, talk with people he'd never talked to, eat things he would have never eaten, live in places he'd never lived. All of the sort of things. Do things he would maybe have never done. It's not as though he's saying, hey, I can't be at work on uh, Saturday. It's Yom Kippur. And I can't work on the Sabbath. And oh, by the way, you can't eat that. Won't wear that. I have needs. Look, I'm free in the Lord. So here's a little list of all the things to which I am titled. Does he do that? No. 
He carefully, you feel the care here, carefully thinking through what is the one thing I can ask for in this land? What's the one thing I can do that can bring God pleasure? And then he asks for it. In other words, like verse 11, he is seeking to be holy before God. And his conduct is so honorable along the way that even though people would love to say evil things about him, they see his good deeds and draw him, they elevate him up until such point that he is of real influence, of such real influence. Many, many years from now, they're going to throw him in a lion's den. He's going to get framed. They're going to throw him in a lion's den. And on that day, do you know that the king that night is going to lose sleep? Lose sleep dreading that Daniel's going to die. That's how much he's going to love this man. All through the exile, you see this. If you read Nehemiah, same thing happens with Nehemiah. Nehemiah gets into the ear of the king through seeking holy life. The king says to Nehemiah, Nehemiah, you look sad. Why are you so sad, Nehemiah? Nehemiah says, well, my Lord, how can I be happy? My city is in ruins and my people have no hope. And the emperor is going to say, oh, that shouldn't be that way, Nehemiah. You should be happy. Here, let's send everybody back home to Israel. Here, open up the treasury. Let's pull everything out of the treasury that was one day taken from Israel. Let's send it all the way back. Here's a letter. Could you rebuild the walls? Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, Nehemiah. Oh, yeah, and also, would you rebuild the walls? Here, would you want some, you want an armed escort to escort you all the way back, Nehemiah? That's what happens. And when we see it, we think, we think, oh, it's a magic trick. God just worked a miracle. I guess it's God's timing. But how easy it is to miss the fact that when Nehemiah heard that Israel was in shambles, he says, on that day, I wept and I fell down in prayer and I fasted and I prayed before the Lord and I grieved and I confessed my sins and the sins of my people to the Lord. And I did that until such a time that the Lord might give me a chance to say a word to the emperor. How is it that a church in exile can gain influence with the greatest kings on the face of the earth? It starts this way. It starts by you and I pursuing genuine holiness. It's that it cannot get any harder and more simple at the same time. You don't need to have a cause. You don't need to have a plan. You don't need to know a website. You don't need to be friends with some movement on Facebook. You know what you need to do? You need to genuinely, genuinely allow the Holy Spirit to begin to set things right in you for His great name. Lord, shape me so that I'm like you. That's what you need to do. And if you do it, and I do it, and we do it, at some point along the way, our conduct will be so honorable among this community that though they would say something against us, they can't because we confound them towards the Lord. That's how, the trick, that's how the trick works. It's how it always had. Read Esther. Read the Bible. God does awesome things through meek and humble people. This is why he says, blessed are the meek. Who's, whose kingdom is it? It's theirs. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
as we pray, I just want you to sort of search out the terrain of your own spirit. Where is it that the Lord would want to, you know, that nagging thing where you're like, I know the Lord wants his day with me on this issue. And for some of you, you've been fighting this issue, you know, whether it's pornography or anger or gossip, you may have been fighting this for years and years and years. That's okay, right? God doesn't hunt us down. He seeks us out like a shepherd. All right? So let him come to you once again. Bring you back into his fold and say to you, flee, flee those sinful passions that war against the flesh. Let's do it because we long to be like him because he called us a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Lord, may we be like you. Lord, may, make us like you, Lord. And we know you can do it through the power of your spirit. And we trust that as that happens, as we are more like you, and as we sit on the margins, you will position us in a place when your day comes for your great name. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.